holy smokes, th- th- there is nothing to this great affinity a particular buck has for a bedding area. Now, th- that's not to say at all that they're not going to come back and use that same bedding area. The way I kind of phrase it is it appears at this point to be kind of like a circuit that they can go through. Hey guys, welcome to the National Deer Association's Deer Season 365 podcast. I'm your host, Brian Grossman, and it is a great time to be a deer hunter. Uh, for most of us across the U.S., rut activity starting to pick up, and we're just a week or two out from some of the very best deer hunting of the year. So I hope you guys all have a, a rutcation scheduled here in the coming weeks, or, or at least some time set aside to be out there and, and get in a deer stand. Uh, I was finally able to restock some venison this past week, which is uh, which is a good thing because we were down to our last few packages of ground venison, and uh, I was starting to get a little bit worried, but I was fortunate enough to shoot a good-sized doe on a, a local WMA here close to my house. Uh, I actually killed a, a big hog and that doe in the same evening, which was was pretty crazy. Uh, slipped into a uh, a small hardwood drainage that kind of juts out into the middle of a just a, a thick nasty cutover filled with briars and grasses and saplings just just great bedding cover and fortunately in that small drainage there was a white oak that was just raining acorns and uh, definitely attracting deer and and hogs evidently too and i ended up having really the the best hunt i've had all season i saw seven deer in total and uh and the one hog and that's uh yeah that's pretty much been the the highlight of my season so far but again guys it it should only get better here over the next few weeks so I, i hope you guys are taking time out to get out there and and enjoy the outdoors but anyway man this week I have a really interesting conversation with Dr. Bronson Strickland of the Mississippi State University Deer Lab, and we're talking about the individuality of bucks. And and what I mean by that is, you know, we often discuss bucks using averages. You know, we might say things like the average buck has a home range of one square mile or or the average buck has a core area of 200 acres. And, And I'm just throwing these figures out there for an example. You know, we may say things like the average yearling buck disperses, you know, five miles from where he was born. But what we sometimes fail to discuss when we're talking about these averages are the outliers. You know, those bucks that that don't fit that average mold. And, and you know, there's quite a few of those examples of those out there. It, it seems like just just like us humans, you know, we all have our own preferences, our own ways we like to do things. Uh, you know, deer can can have preferences as well, and and they don't always do what we think they should or or what we read they should be doing. So it's really interesting. This is a really interesting talk with uh, Bronson, and I think you guys are going to enjoy it. Uh, he's a great guest and has a wealth of knowledge when it comes to whitetail deer and deer behavior, but. Before we get started on that, though, this week's episode is brought to you by longtime NDA partner, 
Banks Outdoors. Uh, Banks makes some just incredible hard-sided hunting blinds uh, through their stump series. And uh, they also manufacture some great gravity feeders and, and watering systems as well. So be sure to check those guys out over at banksoutdoors.com. And as always, we also have a, a lot of different things going on at the NDA right now. So I wanted to take just a, a couple minutes to touch on two of those. Uh, first, we're just about to wrap up that 20% discount that I mentioned on the previous podcast uh, for our Dear Steward One online course. Uh, that discount is going to end on October 31st. And at that point, we're going to shut down uh, Dear Steward One for a few months uh, so we can prepare for launching the new updated version in February. So if you've kind of been on the fence about taking that Dear Steward One online course, now is the time to do so. You can save 20%. So for more information on that, just head over to our website at DeerAssociation.com slash DS1. That's DS1. Uh, we're also wrapping up our First Light NDA membership offer, and I believe that ends this Friday, October 28th. So just a couple days left, if you're listening to this on the day it launches, uh, to get that annual NDA membership, a special NDA First Light camo cap, which those have been really popular, great looking cap in their Spectre camo, and a $25 First Light digital gift card that you can use for purchasing First Light gear over at their website at firstlight.com. And you get all that for just 100 bucks. So you can check that out again on our website, deerassociation.com slash membership drive. Or you can just go to our homepage again at deerassociation.com and look for that banner. Scroll down and you'll see that, that First Light membership banner. So be sure to check that out. And guys, with that, hey, we're going to jump on the phone here with Dr. Bronson Strickland to talk about the individuality or personality of bucks. Hey, Bronson, uh, before we dive into, you know, this talk on, on quote, average bucks, uh, could, you, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and, and what you do there at Mississippi State University? Yeah, sure thing. First of all, thanks, Brian. Appreciate you, you having me on the show here. A um, little bit about myself. Uh, Born and raised in Georgia, or uh, around Athens, Georgia, there, and got my undergrad at the University of Georgia with a lot of people I'm sure you know very well. And uh, left Georgia, uh, got my master's degree uh, at Texas A&M University, Kingsville. So I got to do my master's degree on some big ranches down in South Texas, and that was a, a blast, of course. And then uh, left South Texas and and came to Mississippi State and. Worked on a deer project here with Steve Damaris for many, many years. And uh, after graduation, I uh, worked for U.S. Department of Agriculture for a few years. And then the position that I'm in now, the Extension Wildlife Specialist for Mississippi State, came open. And I was lucky enough to, to get that job. And ever since then, I've been working closely with Steve and we both co-direct the MSU Deer Lab. And Steve is probably more, well, not probably, Steve is more responsible for the research side of, of what we do. And uh, I assist him with that. And I'm more in charge of our, our outreach, our educational products that we produce from that research. And Steve 
helps me with that. So uh, it, it's been a, a great relationship. We complement each other very well. And uh, I guess that's in a nutshell, Brian, what I've done and what I'm doing. Yeah, well, good deal. I know I always enjoy keeping up with uh, which with what you guys are doing through uh, through your podcast and, and your social media posts there. So always yeah, always you. interesting to to see what you guys are into. Yeah, appreciate it. But yeah, for today, I, I wanted to look at kind of the again kind of air quotes here the the average buck based on just some of the research that that's been done over the years and. And then look at kind of how individual bucks can can deviate from that average, because uh, as you know, you know, we the NDA, we try to report a lot of the science um, from researchers and, and biologists like yourself. And inevitably, when we, when we make a, a generalized statement about whitetail deer, you know, we, we report these average bucks um, and how they're behaving, you know, someone responds with an example of, of a deer that that didn't fit that that mold you know well, well that's not what i'm seeing on my property mm-hmm. and you know it's not obviously it's, it's not that they're wrong and it's not necessarily that that what we're reporting is wrong but it's just really i guess more of a, a miscommunication or, or maybe a misunderstanding of the way that the data is reported right so i guess really start us off with just Kind of, kind of just a basic discussion at, at how we arrive at those kind of average deer figures that, that we often report. And then we'll look, you know, we'll look a little deeper into some specific examples uh, afterwards. Okay, sure, sure thing. So, um, well, why don't we start out with something really, really simple? Like, say we wanted to measure uh, food plot forage production or something like that. Um, it's just as simple as probably what we all learned in uh, elementary school or junior high in, in calculating an average. Um, we go out and, and <clears throat> excuse me, co- collect the data, whatever we're measuring, our, our, our metric or our variable that, that we're measuring. And um, we just tally that up. You know, we're just uh, adding all those together and dividing by the, the number of samples that you have. That's how you're going to arrive at your average. Where where we can sometimes get into trouble is when you have a a really small sample size, then your your estimate that we would call it, your your average or your estimate, uh, is not very reliable. And so you'll hear researchers say that this term all the time, well, what was the sample size? And, And really what they're getting at with that question is... Did you measure five of the things or 500 of the things? And if you measured 500 of them, then that the average or metric that you are reporting is far, far more reliable than it would be if you only had a few samples. And Brian, you can think about if we're talking about deer, how, how critical that is. Um, if we were looking at home range size of three bucks versus the home range size of 30 bucks, um, you know, there's a lot of individual variation. And so we need to accumulate more and more samples so that we come up with this, you know, generalized or, or average number. Right. So, you know, even though I guess you may report at the end of this, this study that say, and this is just strictly, you know, I'm just throwing out an example here, but say you, you come out and say, okay, that this average, the average buck home range size based on our study is one square mile. but you know, there might not be a single deer in the study that actually had 
a one square mile home range, correct? I mean, that, you're exactly could, right. You, it probably dances all around that number. And you might have one individual that was two square miles and one individual that was 100 acres. Um, but the average, when you put all of those together, you know, the, the average in the middle. And, and another thing we worry about as researchers is, is the, the distribution of the data and the skew of the data. And so if, if you're familiar with a lot of the antler work at, at Mississippi State, we're, we're really high on this bell-shaped curve. Uh, it's called uh, statistically the normal distribution. But that's really important when you're, you're calculating these averages because you might have something, uh, let's say, like home range size where 90% of the bucks are about a square mile, but you had one or two individuals that was 10 square miles. So that the data are really skewed from that standpoint, and those two outlying observations will skew your mean and make the mean or the average look larger that, than it really is. And so that's something we always do is, uh, are we reporting a, an average or a median? And all that is just based on how, how the data look and, and is an average appropriate for, for whatever we're measuring. And the, another characteristic, Brian, we're, we're concerned about is um, this often not reporting, and that's kind of what you were getting to there, is what we call the, the variability. We would call it standard error or standard deviation, but really it's the inherent variability of, of whatever you are measuring. And um, I can give this a, a example, uh, and it's just very in general here, but uh, in my a previous job, I was uh, doing aerial surveys and we were counting uh, cormorants, double-crested cormorants. And you'd be flying along this particular lake and you have a survey protocol where you look to your left and to your right and you count the number of birds. And so you're you know riding and riding and there's two birds and then there's three birds and there's one bird and there's four bird and then there's 600 birds. And then you go miles and miles and two birds and one bird and 800 birds. And so when you start crunching the, the numbers with the variability, you end up with something like, we think there's, uh, you know, 3,000 birds on this lake, give or take 2,900. <laughs> it, it, that's because of that variability. So, you know, so the data, those types of data don't really conform to calculating a reliable average. And hope I didn't get too much in the weeds there, but the, those are things we always think about when we when we report these numbers. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And yeah, the the poor guy. Well, if you're talking about ducks, or at least the the poor guy sitting there where they're you know you only saw three is thinking, well, those guys are crazy. There's no way there's three thousand ducks on this lake. You know, I've only yeah. seen three. <laughs> yeah, that's that's exactly yeah. right. But 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 spatially, it, it's you would say the distribution isn't uniform over space. It's very very heterogeneous, and so. There's nothing, there's nothing, there's nothing, 3,000, nothing, nothing. And if you're in that area with 3,000, then, then you're in luck and you're going to have oh, a barrel yeah. burner. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, I guess not to get too deep in the weeds here, but what, what do you do in the case of the, the skewed data that you referred to earlier? I mean, do you just note that in, in the research or how do you handle that? Yeah, there, there, there's some uh, statistical ways that, that you can deal with that, with how you re report your average. And the, the very simple, simple way to do it is what we record as 
a median and not a mean. So a median versus an average. And a median is more or less the, the middle of your sample. So, you know, take, you know, kind of rank your, your from your lowest to your highest. And, and you're kind of going there in the middle of what the, the variation of your samples were. Okay. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. Yeah. Yep. Well, since since we've touched on on home range, I guess kind of let's start there when it when it comes to um, the the average buck again, uh, because that that seems to be a pretty good example of uh, I, I guess uh, I guess you'll tell me, but it seems to be a pretty good example of of individual preference among these bucks. And I know you know this is going to vary a good bit by by maybe region and habitat type, and and we'll talk more about that in a minute. But I mean. Is there? Do you have kind of a a average home range size home range size for a a whitetail buck? Yeah, I, I think so. And um, I think what's really cool about this is study after study, not just in Mississippi, but in, in Georgia and Alabama and Louisiana, Texas, et cetera. Um, the, the 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 old uh, number that we've always used, I think, is is pretty darn good and reliable. And it's what you said earlier about a square mile. You do have to make a caveat with that, though, in specifying now, is that uh, an annual home range, you know, over the entire year or or during the rut? Now, during the rut, it's going to be relatively larger. And so, for example, with our most recent study, you're looking at somewhere probably 800, 900, 1,000 acres uh, during the rut, you know, so over a six week period or something like that it's going to be a little bit larger but but then when you start you know over an annual time scale then you start including those data points where uh hey they were in a bachelor group and the movements were much much less uh they're not running all over the place and so you have a lot of data points in that regard on an annual scale that's weighted for a much smaller home range size and then during the rut, you have a lot of samples weighted towards a much larger home range size. But over an annual scale, you're probably looking at six or seven hundred acres. Okay. And so how much variation have you seen in that? Either, you know, within your research or just kind of within research in general? Um, what, what's kind of that that low end and, and high end of, of those home ranges that you've seen? Um, we've got a lot of bucks, probably about 25% or so that are, that are less, that might even be around the the 500 acre mark or 400 acres. And then we got some of those outliers that if you ask me why they do it, I'm going to tell you, I don't know that are going to be, we're getting to that (laughs) (laughs) jumping ahead here Yeah, Uh, that are two or three or four thousand acres oh wow. so they're just covering a lot of ground but again though those are the the exception and not the rule and when we come back to the average i think the average is pretty good you know during the rut uh 800 900 a thousand acres is a pretty good estimate okay and have you seen any influence or, or does i guess does buck age seem to have any influence on that that home range size um I think it does. We'll delve a little bit more into this with our, with our stats, but preliminarily, the, uh, what I've seen, if I'm remembering correctly, is a very subtle decrease in home range size. 
Um, and it might be one of those where we say, hey, you know, it's significantly different, but management wise, it really doesn't have management implications. But but there appears to be, if you look at the averages, just a slight uh, constriction and home range size as they get older. Okay. But as far as I guess uh, on it, so on the individual level, they, they might get a little smaller as they age, but as, as far as comparing, say, you know, our, our, in general, our yearling buck home ranges larger than the mature buck home ranges, or, or is it kind of across the board there? Yeah, I, I'm sorry. Yeah, I, 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 that, that's, the case. And, you know, you've got a lot of movements with, with dispersal of those yearlings. And uh, honestly, with our most recent study, that's not something I can speak to with our GPS collar data because uh, we did not collar yearling bucks. But um, the research I've seen in the past is those can be a little bit larger. And, uh, and then two and a half may even be a little bit larger than yearlings or about the same. And then they typically will will shrink over time, uh, not over time as they age, going from two to three, three to four, four to five, gotcha. etc. Uh huh. Okay. What about habitat? Does, does habitat seem to to play a role in in these home range sizes? You know, uh, theoretically, it it should, and I I think it does play a role in that if you have really uh, poor habitat or the distribution of resources is really far apart. And I remember reading some studies, even with mule deer uh, for, you know, 20, 30 years ago that, that demonstrated this. So I think two things are, are at play is the, you know, the, the quality of the habitat and then uh, the distribution of resources. So if you have resources, food, cover, water, pretty well clumped together, um, then the bucks will have a, a smaller home range size. Uh, I think that's true. If um, it just creating a scenario here, if you've got uh, food is clustered in one part and you got to go two miles away to cover and vice versa, then of course, you know, home range size has to be bigger because their resources are spread across the landscape at, at a much larger scale. But but then also with that, Brian, I also believe that uh, bucks are going to be bucks. And regardless of what the resources or their distribution, when it comes to, to the breeding season, they're going to move around. So I think all that falls apart when you get into the to the rut. All bets are off. Right. And I don't know if this is something you've looked at. Honestly, I've I've, I've never really heard this this talked about within the, the discussion of, of home range sizes, but uh, what about deer density? Do you know, does deer density have any impact on, on these home range sizes? That is a, a good question. And I'm not thinking of any study, even though it very well may be out there. I, I can't really think off the top of my head, any study that addressed that directly. And it might be difficult to determine, you know, what is the actual cause of that, the cause versus the correlation. Is it the density from a social perspective? Uh, but I suspect it would be more on a resource perspective. Um, too, too many deer resources are limited. 
that means you have to walk further and forage for a longer amount of time to to fill up your belly. Gotcha. But I I can't think of one off the top of my head. And I'll as soon as you stop recording, three of them will probably come to my mind at that <laughs> yeah, that's, point. That's what usually happens. <laughs> that's me, what yeah. usually happens. Uh, no, that's okay. Because like I said, I, I haven't I haven't heard that reported anywhere. But it was just something that that came to mind. Whether or not that had any influence, but yeah. But I guess looking at these home ranges and kind of with all things equal, you know, say we're looking at at similar habitat and uh, similar region of country, and even looking across maybe you know similar age classes of bucks. Do you still see variation in individual bucks home range sizes yeah i mean does there there seem to be some individual i guess quote preference there yeah yeah we we do and um i i guess and i think you covered some of this with our our graduate student uh luke resop about the what what we're kind of calling buck personalities as related to uh movement behavior and yeah it's uh i'm kind of um I guess grouping here, rounding that you you know you got twenty or thirty percent of of these bucks um, that demonstrate a movement behavior that is really atypical or a lot different than what we traditionally thought bucks were going to do, and and that just simply means they start engaging in these these behaviors where they will literally pick up and move their home range. And so when you plot their home range on a map, it kind of looks like a dumbbell. So they spend part of their year in one spot and part of their year in another place. And that may be two miles away, five miles away, or 15 miles away. And Brian, is, it's really interesting. I always tell this story because uh, I, I, I like to, to let people know that I, I really try to be intellectually honest when I, when I make mistakes, when, when I'm, and, and years ago, I mean, before all this GPS t- technology was out there and we could see the stuff with our own eyes is, you know, that there's some hunters with, with a lot of trail cameras and I would have, I don't know, several of them over the years reached out and said, you know, what's going on? Um, it seems like every single year during this week or this two week period, Either this particular buck shows up or it's gone. And, you know, the hunter will say, I always thought it was because he got killed. And but he's not. He's like, I've got cameras all over the property. And this buck was lived for three months on my property. And in one day, it was completely gone. Now, the, the way I was thinking and, and probably a lot of people more traditional mindset with that, the traditional evidence was that's probably not true. It's just probably that buck has figured something out. It It's not going where your cameras are. And it's probably still there and you're just missing it because you're seeing it again the next year. And I, I remember uh, email and, and phone calls with people and, and kind of conveying that same thing. Well, I, I think you got it wrong. I think it's still there. Well, then you get these GPS collars, this technology, and you put it on there and it turns out they were right. They, they were exactly right, is that some of these bucks, and nobody knows, nobody knows what, what causes it. 
but they will just pick up and move, and they typically do it with some regularity in terms of the time of year that they do it. And it's pretty amazing. Any, uh, I know, <laughs> I shouldn't ask you this, but any theories on your end, just personal theories of, of why this may be occurring? Yes. Um, and I, I don't know if it's a theory, really. And I, I know, <clears throat> excuse me, I, I know in the, the literature with, um, with a lot of birds, especially what we would call colonial nesting water birds. So think of those birds on barrier islands where, where they nest and there will be, you know, hundreds to thousands or ten thousands of them. And, and again, they started learning this with GPS technology, putting these transmitters on these birds. And they would look at some of these females, even though on the island that they're nesting, they would raise a successful nest, a clutch. And everything was good. Everything worked out. But they started noticing that some of those females during the day would go to other islands and just kind of see what they have. And, and the term they use is prospecting. Are, are they gathering data? You know, um, and, and I know birds nor deer or anything are processing this information like we as humans process it. But somehow are they remembering that next year when they come back, they're going to go to another island to nest. And that's just really got me and Steve and Luke and others kind of thinking that is that just something buried within the genome of, of all animals? And I guess we call it a, uh, an exploration you know, behavior, a colonizing behavior. And you can even think about, like with human beings, how some humans um, not not only will but enjoy. They volunteer. They want to be the explorer. They want to be the one to get on a ship and you know go to a new land. And most of the people, Brian, do what they say. I'm good. I'm safe. I've got everything I need. I'm going to let you know that guy take the risk because it's risky behavior. And what we're just thinking and wondering, and maybe someday we can confirm, is there always just going to be a fraction of, of, of any type of animal where they just demonstrate this very risky, uh, exploratory or colonizing behavior? Because it will be advantageous to an individual if they land at a good spot. So some are, I'm happy with the way conditions are. I'm making a living. Something hadn't killed me. I've got food. I'm not going to risk it. And then you've got this, you know, 20% or 10%, whatever of animals say, hey, I'm going for it. I'm tired of being here. I'm, I'm going to roll the dice, you know. And if I wind up, you know, somewhere where things are better, then, you know, I'm going to be the beneficiary of that. Um. That's kind of what we're thinking, Brian, and we don't have any numbers or any genetic evidence or anything like that to prove it, but it seems to be logical, at least at this point. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Very interesting. And well, I guess it's a little more thinking about, you know, when I was given the example of some of those water birds, it seems to be that that those researchers have kind of confirmed that that's what's going on, you know, that they're going to take some time to explore and see if the grass is greener on the other side. 
And so that, that just kind of fed us to thinking that maybe this is going on with the deer as well. Okay. Do you think that I assume that you heard about, I don't know if this was a year ago, two years ago, but I assume you heard about the, uh, the buck there in Missouri that made like the 180 mile trek over <laughs> 22 days yes. i think it was you, yeah you think that it was maybe just an extreme example of, of the same behavior gosh maybe so or maybe <laughs> he had a brain abscess or yeah a, i don't know that that was at the the very far end of the continuum for sure <laughs> yeah. so I, I don't know if he had this this colonizing you know behavior and and he just went crazy with it you know I don't know, but I remember being astounded when I saw that. It was amazing. Yeah, I can't. I can't imagine being the researcher who you know seen this thing show up on on the uh, the GPS data, 180 miles away. And yeah, assumed. I think they assumed you know it was in the back of somebody's pickup truck or something. But, <laughs> yeah, that's the uh, first thing I would have assumed. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> and then I would have immediately gone through to confirm and looked at the time between the two points. You know, right, it's yeah, like, was yeah. that 60, 60 miles an hour or not? <laughs> oh, yeah, definitely what I guess would fall into the uh, extreme outlier category. That's there. an extreme. Well, yeah, that's the equivalent of like uh, <laughs> 220 Boone and Crockett score on the movement ecology scale. Yeah, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> uh, now, do you guys, you know, I know a lot of the research references w- when you're talking about home range, a lot of them will reference core areas. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? What, what, what is a core area and do you see kind of some of that similar variability in, in core areas that you do in your home ranges? Yeah, it, it's essentially, and, and I hate to, I hate to say it, Brian, hate it, but I got to say it and it depends here. Yeah. Uh, it, it's going to depend on the, the, the distribution of your points and, Remember, when we're calculating these home ranges and, and gosh, every year, every year, every six months, it seems like uh, the, the movement ecology group, and they're all brilliant, they, they come up with new mathematical ways to calculate it, you know, a, a more sophisticated technique. But, but essentially, or at least the way I have to think about it with my simple-minded self, is just look at all of those points on the landscape, you know, all those little dots, which are locations. And typically, as you get further and further away from the center, the the points get more and more sparse or the distance between those points get further and further apart. And so we call this core area is like the interior part of, of their home range and we usually say a 50% core area. And typically that means that about half of the observations are located in that polygon or where we drew a circle around that cluster of points. And, and so typically that core area scales with the uh, 95%, which is the estimator we use typically, to, for, for home range size. So they typically kind of scale together, but okay. it all depends on, the, um, you know, the distribution. Did they show a lot of affinity within that core area for a few spots or were those, what was that spread out a little bit more? But, but generally that's the relationship that if one of those, if the, the home range number goes up, typically the core area is going to go up with it. Okay. 
Yep, that was kind of that was kind of where I was headed with that. Yeah, yeah. they were kind of proportionate to one another. So. Yeah. Well, let, let's talk a little bit about betting behavior. Um, I know you guys have have posted some some interesting graphics on social media showing specific buck movements and embedding areas with a couple of bucks. And, you know, this seems to be an area that, that deer hunters and, and I'm including myself in that are, are still trying to figure out, you know, there, there's been article after article written on, on a deer's feeding habits. And, you know, most hunters kind of have a pretty good idea of, of what they're looking for in that regard. But I think a lot of us still struggle to understand these bedding areas and, you know, how they're using them, how often, you know, are they, do they have a, a main bedding area that they're using day after day or they have multiple bedding areas that they're reusing or, or how that, that all works together. And, yeah. and one thing that, that stood out to me in, in your all's graphics that kind of goes against, I guess, the grain of, of what I've heard in popular hunting media over the years is that, you know, these, these bucks had multiple scattered bedding areas you know unlike like they were returning to the same bedding area day after day or at least I, I believe that's you can correct me if i'm wrong on that but that was what i thought i yes i got out of that but yep, you right you, can you speak to that i mean uh, what what you've kind of seen and and does this point to uh, do there seem to be different personalities i guess in these bucks when it comes to bedding do, do are some have a higher affinity for one bedding area versus having multiple ones scattered around well, that that Brian is the goal of of one of our upcoming research projects. We we already have a a student in place, and that is going to be one of the things they they delve into and uh, and hopefully a- answer that question. Uh, right now, we've only examined uh, a couple bucks. You know, we're, we had a really good data set for them, and they they were just kind of easy to 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 examine. The, the question. Um, so I, I guess, Brian, all I can talk about is kind of what we've seen so far and, and say that this could change as like, like kind of like we started. It, it may out of random chance be that the, the couple bucks we looked at were the exception and, and not the rule. So when we get a sample of, you know, 40 or 50 of these bucks, we're going to have a much uh, more reliable feel for what they're all doing. But th- this, to me, Brian, was just like you said. I, I held the exact same belief because that's what I grew up hearing and reading was the Buck's bedroom. It's just this one particular area. It's it's off the beaten path. And if you were ever lucky enough to find a Buck's bedroom Number one, you've hit the jackpot because you know where he's going to be. And then number two, you better be careful. You better be so careful, you know, not to get in there and disturb that that buck's bedroom. And so when we started looking at our current data, um, I just essentially started tinkering with getting a couple bucks and just literally plotting their data day by day, hour by hour, and just following it. So I went from kind of being a, a researcher to just tinkering and having fun. And I just started noticing this pattern of, you know, the, this cluster of points here that was obviously the buck was not moving and it was bedded. And then, you know, a couple out have, have a little uh, foraging bout, move a little bit. Here's another bedding area. And they were not in the same spot. And then have a, another foraging bout, move, and here's another bedding area. 
and just started to started just going day by day and looking and plotting all those areas like, holy smokes, th- th- there is nothing to this great affinity a particular buck has for a bedding area. Now, th- th- that's not to say at all that they're not going to come back and use that same bedding area. The way I kind of phrase it is it appears at this point to be kind of like a circuit that they can go through. I mean, it's almost like, hey, um, you know, I've got 30 or 40 of these spots, 50, who knows, you know, in my home range. And where, wherever I'm at, and I'm going to choose to lay down either because I'm, I need to ruminate, need to chew my cud or rest or whatever, is that they just find that spot and that's where they sit down in bed a while. So that there's a, there's a lot of them and the, and that's kind of a metric we'll probably calculate better uh, with a, a greater sample size and over time. And does it differ by age, differ by season, et cetera, is just regarding that circuit, you know, how often are they using a particular bedding area and the time or distance between when they're using those bedding areas. So we're, we are very excited, um, especially from, from a hunting standpoint. I personally, <laughs> I, I, I want to know this. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that, that one will be a, uh, that, I think that one will be very, a very popular topic. Uh, yeah, once you, once you release the, the date on that one. But Brian, it also op- it opens a door to where uh, something you said earlier is we're going to have the numbers based on the context of where and when we did this study. So based on the habitat features, the vegetation structure, how they're distributed across the landscape, you might have someone from the Midwest or the Northeast or somewhere else in the Southeast that might be in a completely different food cover distribution context where our results don't apply. And so we can just a real simple thought exercise could be over this square mile or over these three square miles, there's only four points on the landscape where there's cover. And so those bucks might show a far greater affinity to those areas because cover is limited on that landscape. Where, where we're at, and a lot of places in the southeast, cover generally is not limited. So we, we may have a lot more bedding areas in our study area because there were a lot more spots a buck could bed. But you might go somewhere else, and it may not be the case. So I, I guess I just thought about something you said earlier, and I'm expecting <laughs> that we'll get some feedback saying it's not like that on my property. And, and, yeah, and they're probably right. Right. Yep. right. It may not be that way on their property. Yeah. And and that's one of the first things when I saw those graphics from you guys and started, you know, processing that, that was one of the first questions that came to mind is, well, maybe, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean what what I've heard about these, you know, more limited bedding areas may be the case. But like you said, just there, that may be more of a, a Midwestern thing where there are a, a lot less uh, places for them to hide, I guess, you know, a lot more right. open ground, a lot less cover. And so, yeah, you certainly got to take all that into, into consideration. Yeah, definitely. Um, I guess let's, uh, well, one thing I was saying there, you, you've just, you've just looked at the two bucks so far, I, I guess. So have you seen any, I guess, differences in, in what 
just those two bucks are doing, or do they seem to be uh, pretty similar in, in how they're moving around in those circuits? Um, you know, if if there's any differences, I sure don't remember. Uh, I, I definitely remember them being far more similar than dissimilar. Okay. In, yeah. In, in ter- yeah. In, in terms of uh, the, the the number of beds and the rate at which they use them. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's why. That's why I was getting that. I didn't know. You know, if one of them was was had an affinity for just one or you know one a handful of beds, where the other one was using a, a lot more. But right. Okay. So yeah, it'll be interesting to everybody. I'll just have to uh, to wait on that one and and. It's coming. The, uh, I promise it's coming. <laughs> Give us some time. Hey, that's a, uh, I'm, I'm envious of the graduate student that gets to uh, work on that one. That That's going to be a cool one to be a part of. I'm going to remember that little sound bite right there, Brian. So <laughs> when they're in the throes of data analysis, you know, well, I can yeah, say, hey, <laughs> now there's a lot of people envious of this. So <laughs> That's right. That's right. The ones that really don't know that w- what goes into it. That's the ones that are envious. Of <laughs> the hours of sitting crunching numbers. So. Yeah, that's uh, right. But l- let's uh, talk a little bit about excursions, because that, that seems to be another area where there's a lot of variability in, I guess, how different bucks behave. Mm-hmm. Um, but can you, I guess, start off by just touching on what what is an excursion and, you know, maybe what you know, how, how, what percentage of bucks go on excursions and, and that kind of thing? Okay. Well, th- this is probably not a, a, a definition you would find in a ecology book or a movement ecology book. They'd probably have a much more sophisticated <laughs> response than what, what right. I have. But we want the hunter version. <laughs> this so is kind okay. of the hunter version <laughs> is, is they're, they're deviating from their normal pattern. And in, in regards to home range and movement. So um, when we look at, at a home range over some defined period of time, seasonally, annually, um, we will see these little, it'll look like a, a hair or, you know, what is this little point, this little group of points that, that goes out and comes back? And that is just basically that you know, the deer was using a particular area day in, day out, day in, day out, and then for a day, six hours, 12 hours, 24 hours, 48 hours, you know, it, it took a little trip. It just took a little weekend trip and it left its normal home range and, and goes and, you know, what exactly are they, are they doing? We don't know. But, but I think, Brian, and I'm not going to get back into that, all the long-winded stuff I talked about the colonizing <laughs> behavior. But I think what, what we're seeing here is that all deer possess this desire to look for greener pastures. Some of them just do it at a far more grandiose scale than others. So most all of these bucks are having at least an excursion or two. Um, now, it may not be very far, it may not be extreme, but they're always tiptoeing around and getting out of their normal home range. And then some of these bucks just take it to an extreme. And, you know, they're kind of what we'd say in that, uh, that mobile, that 20% or 30% is kind of that mobile personality where they don't just go on an excursion, they leave, they stay gone, and then they come back. And then some of them bounce back and forth between those. You know, they can't make up their mind which one I want to stay in. And so I, I guess I've, 
you know, we kind of have to come up with some groups and some names for them. But but I really, Brian, think it's a it's a continuum uh, of behavior. And I think that the average behavior is what we're kind of calling this group of bucks that are sedentary. It's kind of this traditional, I have a home range in the space and I have a few excursions. And then the other end of the continuum is they just really don't show sight fidelity for very long. They go somewhere for a few months, they pick up and move back or move somewhere else. But I think it's all kind of that same behavior, whether we're just taking it to an extreme or not. Okay. And I know you guys, and, and I talk with Luke some about this, but but y'all have been monitoring a buck that's made at least two trips now, I think several miles each way, uh, crossing the Mississippi River each time. Yeah. Uh, now, those, I guess, would not be necessarily considered excursions. That, that kind of, I guess, falls into the that dual home range that you were talking about earlier. Yes. Yeah. That's That's how I would categorize that. Right. And how long is he, I guess, when, when's that movement occurring and how long is he stay, does he stay gone and come back? Well, yeah, it, it's kind of a, a spring, summer, fall kind of pattern. So that buck will spend his uh, fall and winter in Mississippi and then come springtime, we'll see him start moving over to the river, to the east side of the Mississippi River, and then he'll take the jump the plunge, literally, and uh, swim the Mississippi River, and he settles in, in an ag region of Louisiana. And hey, that's probably pretty smart. He's probably filling his, his belly full of soybeans every day. He'll hang out there pretty much all during the, the, the growing season. And around August, he'll, he'll then demonstrate the same thing in reverse. We'll see him kind of pick up and move from what his home range was there in Louisiana, and he'll stage along the west side of the river, and then he'll take the plunge and come back to Mississippi. And for two years in a row, he followed that exact same pattern. And and not just the pattern of going to Louisiana, back to Mississippi, back to Louisiana, but I, I want to say on both of those trips, going to Louisiana and back, all within about a week of each other. Um, so mm-hmm. it, it's just remarkable, and it brings up all these other questions. <laughs> yes, How do they keep track of time? And is it a photo period? Is it a photo period? Is that their clock? And somehow when the photo period, the day to night ratio uh, hits a certain point, it triggers the same way it does uh, with bucks and does their, their hormonal system. Is it triggering some type of behavioral response? To my knowledge, no one knows, but it is fascinating. It is very fascinating. How closely this second year, I guess, how closely was his track to that that first year? I mean, is he pretty much making almost an identical um, course over to Louisiana and yeah, you know, f- forgive me if I'm I'm off here. My my memory is that it wasn't going to be like uh, some of these examples we've seen with uh, mule deer migration, where they're literally on the same trail, <laughs> and, and it might be up in the mountains because that's the only place you can walk. But right, yeah. it, it it followed a very similar path, if if my memory is correct. Okay, 
That's, yeah, that's and, and to me, that makes sense. To me, that would be adaptive for an animal is that, you know, I made it safely following this path and I'm going to take this path again. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, it's amazing to me that, that they know that path, you know, that I know. It, and you know, what would make a deer want to swim the river back and forth every year like that? It's uh, yeah. Just one, I guess some things will probably remain a mystery for a long time to come when it comes to, to deer behavior. It will. And, uh, you know, I don't know. I, I live in Mississippi, so I crossed the river a good bit. But for those that hadn't, um, that, that's a big body of water. <laughs> that's a big body of water, especially depending on the time of the year, like in the springtime when all of that water is moving through there and it's moving pretty fast. And it is it is amazing to be on one side and think a deer was able to get in the water and, you know, and they don't have flippers, they have hooves and <laughs> yeah. how they can navigate that so effectively. I have no idea, but that's why mm. they're amazing. That's why they're deer. Yeah. I think what amazes me more than anything is just that he survived that for two years. I, I mean, know it. I know. Uh, yeah. Good point. It'll be interesting. I guess you guys are still, I mean, is he still going and still got a collar on? Oh, Brian, that's the, that's the bad news right oh, there. No. <laughs> they, we lost, we lost communication with him. So his battery died, okay. expired normal, you know, we were expecting it, but um, we, we were hoping for an outlier in uh, battery length <laughs> for, for this yeah. particular bug, but we got the average, not the outlier. Oh, so man. His battery's dead and maybe we can, um, we, we've talked to some, some people in the area of Mississippi around there and, we we would uh, we would love to have that collar back. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, I, I know you guys do a good bit of kind of food plot and, and deer forage research as well. Have you seen any variability in in food preference among individual deer? I mean, do some deer just you know prefer brassicas over clover or vice versa or you know whatever whatever the case may be have you seen any food preferences you know that the, the only thing i can really speak to that with any certainty at all would, would probably be uh our, our deer pen our research deer just because we we know the individual and you might know some particular tendencies of one like some of these crazy bucks brian it'll drive you nuts <laughs> you'll break off a a limb of sweet gum and uh it's like why in the world are you eating that sweet gum you're not supposed to like that <laughs> yeah. but you know but but within the context of these confined research deer most likely it is the novelty of it you know it it is something different than just eating these pellets you know day in day out so that they browse on something that most deer Probably would not. So in that regard, you know, we've seen that with with pen deer that's, you know, that they can certainly show uh, a preference. And this is probably what I'm about to say is is very much supported in the livestock and animal science literature. Uh, I don't think it's really supported yet because it's a, it's a pretty complicated way you'd have to study it and, and go about it. But right. in, uh, in livestock studies, they, they absolutely documented individual differences. And the, the very simple test was that looking at a, a feed, like what we would call a deer feed, they had a pelleted like cow feed. And what they did, and this was Fred Provenza, 
Fred Provenza, retired professor emeritus from Utah State, and he has a, a plug for him. He has a wonderful book called Nourishment, and it basically takes all his 30-something years of research <clears throat> on these tops, topics and put it in more of a popularized book. And it is, I think if you're into deer, you you would really, really love this book, but it's called Nourishment, Fred Provenza. And I'm just repeating what I learned re- reading his book. But in this one experiment, they took the constituents of the pelleted feed that these uh, livestock were being fed. And, and I don't remember exactly, you know, let's just say it had corn in it and soybean and barley, you know, but, but four or five of those components. And, and then in an adjacent pen or facility, <clears throat> different animals, they, they broke those constituents apart to where an individual animal could choose, I want more of this, or the other animal is, I want more of that. So what they found is that a lot of these uh, cows, they were having to eat some of the stuff they didn't want to be able to consume the things they did. But when you separated those things out, the cows were able to eat precisely what they wanted. And as a result, if you looked at the total amount of feed consumption where they were combined was greater than the total total amount of feed consumption where they were separated. And, And the whole point of that was that researcher demonstrating that there is individual variation in what these within a species with what foods they select based on individual differences, their metabolism, their physiology, their body craves more of a particular nutrient than another animal. So some deer may need more phosphorus, some deer may need more calcium, some may be very efficient at metabolizing protein, and another may not. So they have to eat more protein-enriched foods than, than another one. And so I guess the answer is, Brian, from my perspective, is I don't think anybody has really demonstrated that with wild, free-ranging whitetails, but, but I know it exists. It has to exist. And hopefully that's something we can examine in the future. Yeah. Well, I guess through all your years of research, have, have, have you come across any odd or unusual behavior in deer uh, besides the, the deer, I guess, swim in the Mississippi multiple times uh, that's just, you know, left you scratching your head wondering why in the world is that deer, deer doing that? Um, this probably isn't a really interesting, sexy answer, but um, (laughs) (laughs) um, and and part of that may be, Brian, it's just I'm around deer so much, you know, captive deer and and so forth. So maybe some of the things that might surprise someone else, it doesn't surprise me as much. But one thing that still sticks in my mind, and this is when I was a graduate student in South Texas, and we had a a project going, or my my project, Um, we had captive deer, but we would take those captive deer and we would put them on on the range. So we built temporary enclosures that were about an acre in size or so 
we put up temporary fencing and and what we were measuring is what they were eating how much and and could they get uh, energy balance from what was on the range at that particular time of year well of course we're running this all year long for two years and um, some of my captive deer were coming into estrus and the one thing I remember is that I was in uh, I think I was doing veg collection actually but I was on the the fence so I'm literally right beside the the fence the enclosure and uh, one of these bucks detected that that one of the does the captive does was an estrus and would would literally ignore me to to the point of um, I couldn't put my hands on the buck, but uh, it was probably like three feet away. And when I would move towards that buck, it would literally just match my movements where I was always in kind of this bubble of always being about three feet away. <laughs> and, I, and, and I would, you know, and I could just push it up and down the fence, you know, so the, the buck is kind of looking through me, uh, you know, watching this doe. But acknowledging that I'm there and kind of moving along with me, but I just remembered being overwhelmed at that point of, um, number one, how cool was this? <laughs> and, and, and then n- number two, just that the, the overriding sense or need to breed that these bucks have. And, you know, it just plays all into, you know, bucks just go absolutely crazy dur- during the rut. And it. That that was just something that was very fun and interesting that happened to me. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And yeah, I'm I'm glad they get a little crazy during the rut, or else you know most I wouldn't of us stand would a chance. Kill, <laughs> we would never <laughs> kill a good one. <laughs> oh, and I guess that that's that's kind of a good uh, a good turning point here because as as we kind of wrap things up, I I, I did want to kind of bring the discussion back to how deer hunters can can apply some of this to their hunting strategy. And, you know, you said something in our email exchange there as we were planning this interview that that I thought summed it up perfectly. And that was, you know, you said we hunt and manage deer based on averages, but you acknowledge opportunities with the outliers. So yeah. can you can you kind of explain, you know, what you what you meant by that? Well, um, I, I guess I'm always grounded in. It seems like the the exceptions get more attention than the rule. And I mean, Brian, think about in, in your line of work there with NDA, um, the, the basics, uh, maybe it's just boring to people, but the, the most fundamental things with deer management are the very basic things, age and nutrition. And it, you know, it's it's not sexy. It, it it doesn't wow or woo people when when you say that. But those are just the fundamentals that are the single most important things. And I I think we also when it gets into on the hunting side, and maybe it's because we're always looking for an edge. You know, we're always looking for that little thing that can can help us. Is I think we give a, a lot of of attention to things like the weather and the moon and, you know, all these kind of um, explanations for why you may see more deer today. And what I always come back to, and believe you me, because I hunt, you know, I've been on those hunts where, holy smokes, the deer were moving today. And I've been on some where I thought it should have been a fantastic day and I got skunked. But the 
the thing that always comes to mind, and, and you learn this when you put a collar on a deer, deer move every day. Deer move every single day. Why do they move every single day? Because they have to. They have to move, you know, every single day. And I think people like to um, group things into they're moving today or they're not moving today. And the truth of the matter is they're they're moving every single day. It just may not be that you were at the setup at the right place at the right time to capitalize on that. And so I think just, you know, acknowledging that in this case, I guess in that context, maybe it was an outlier. It was an outlier hunt for you because you saw 20 deer or you saw two of the bucks you were interested in. Um, but that may have been random chance. You know, I, I don't a lot of these things I don't think you can plan for. It's just that the more time that you hunt, the more hours you put in, the more you can take advantage of that extreme behavior by a buck showing up within bow distance or rifle distance. I guess that's kind of what I was getting at. And uh, so, something else we, we've learned, Brian, that from, from a hunting perspective um, may not mean anything to you, but it was fascinating to me because it's a question I've always had is we started looking at these buck home ranges on a daily scale, a daily scale and through the rut. And the, the conventional wisdom was that on a daily scale, these daily home ranges are going to get bigger and bigger and bigger during, during the rut. And what we found out is they don't, but they don't, uh, a buck based on our data, you know, our study period, the time we did it, the, Daily home range before the rut, the early rut, the pre-rut, the peak of the rut, the post-rut, it doesn't matter. It was all they covered about 200 acres of ground a day. About 200 acres of ground a day. Now, <clears throat> how their home range gets bigger during, say, the peak of the rut is because there is a greater distance between the 200-acre daily home range from day to day. Let me say that another way. If we have this 200 acre daily home range, and we're going to look at five of them together, Monday, Wednesday, Thursday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, five of them. When you're not in the rut, those 200 acre daily home ranges are overlapping a great deal, overlapping a great deal. However, when you get into the rut, the daily home range for Monday, that's 200 acres, may be 500 or 1,000 yards or 1,500 yards from what it was Tuesday, and then another 1,000 yards from where it was Wednesday. So on a daily scale, they're still using the same amount of area or space. It's just that from day to day, those areas get further apart. And that's kind of micro and macro differences of their movement behavior before the rut and, and during the rut. So to me as a hunter, and I'm thinking about those outliers and how to take advantage of it and get lucky is that, you know, I, I got to put in a lot of hours because if that buck is in, in the area, it may be a week from now, but hopefully at one time I'm going to be on the stand when that 200 acre daily home range is overlapping where I'm hunting. 
Yeah. Yep. Yeah. The best, the best time to be in the deer stand is, is anytime you can be in the deer stand. It's being in the deer stand. <laughs> yep. That's exactly right. Absolutely. That's interesting though. Yeah. I, I did not realize that. So it, it's not that they're covering a bunch more ground daily during the rut. They're just, they're just covering different areas from day to day or, or spreading yeah. out more day to day, I guess. Yeah. That, okay. that, that's exactly right. And I didn't know, I, di- I didn't think of it that way until we started digging in the data and looking at it on a daily scale. I, I personally thought that was fascinating. It is. It is. Yeah. Now, uh, you kind of touched on one of those in, in that, in, uh, with what you just said there, but taking, I guess, all the, these exceptions, the outliers, the variations into account, the regional differences, are there any, universal truths or, or universal rules that you can kind of take to the bank about any buck out there, you know, no matter where they live. And, and you mentioned one there a minute ago, and that's, you know, deer are going to move every day. Mm-hmm. Um, a- any others that you can think of? <laughs> Here's one that's 99.999% <laughs> true, but dadgummit, there'll always be an exception. Um Deer get bigger when they get older. And that, that's just really simple. But holy smokes, Brian, is that so critically important for deer management? Um, you, you have to let bucks get old. And if you let bucks get old, then these rules that we're talking about start working in your favor. You know, um, uh, you know, and, and also like the, the exception with, uh, let's say, antler size is is sometimes don't don't let the exception of affect your expectations so for for example you lease some property and you're you're new to the property and just lucky you i mean really lucky you you kill a 170 on that property um you probably need it's probably going to be better for you and your satisfaction to acknowledge up front that um you, you killed the exception and not the rule. <laughs> yeah. You can't just manage to grow that the average is not going to be a 170. You know, that that's a very, very special antler size. And there's not there's not very many of them. So be happy that that you got the rare buck on the landscape. Um, yeah, that's probably it. Yeah. That, well, that's good. <laughs> well, Bronson, I, I Thank you so much for your time today um, and enjoyed our conversation and uh, learned a lot. And I know the listeners are uh, definitely going to enjoy it as well and hopefully take some information away from this that they can use to, you know, not only better understand some of the the, the deer research and the findings that, that we report on and that you guys report on, uh, but, you know, also be able to, to get out there and be a little more successful in the field. Thank you very much, Brian. I appreciate the opportunity. And one, one little plug, if, if you don't mind. Um, no, nope. I was going to ask you, um, you know, if there's, if there's any, any place uh, where they could keep up with what you guys are doing or anything, yeah, that you wanted to mention on here. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, um, we, we do the typical social media outlets. So we're on MSU Deer Lab and that's on, uh, you know, Facebook and Instagram. And we're really trying to ramp up our YouTube channel so you can look at MSU Deer Lab TV on YouTube, and we're trying to get videos on on there more and more. And uh, we have a podcast called Deer University. So we we nerd out on the podcast and talk about 
deer biology and management. It's not, it's not a hunting podcast, even though it kind of relates to hunting, but it's right. definitely more based on biology and management. But relative to this buck movement stuff, we are uh, working currently on uh, an extension publication on this the, the findings from this buck movement study. And what I mean by an extension publication, it's going to be a, a popularized. So it's, it's going to be like a very long popular article that you might read in Quality Whitetails or, or something like that. And uh, we're just going to have all this listed, kind of the things we talked about, about uh, sedentary personality and these mobile bucks and excursions and these averages and the skewed data. You know, all that kind of stuff is going to be free uh, for, for anyone to view and download. And how about this, Brian, when it's ready, maybe I can shoot you an email with a copy of it and you can let your audience know where it's at and they are more than welcome to download it hopefully use it and learn from it yeah yeah absolutely we'll do that and we'll, we'll i'll be sure to include links to uh your own social media and youtube channel and all that in the show notes but yeah definitely uh once that uh once that research gets uh gets published yeah i definitely definitely like to share that with our audience maybe even have you back on to discuss it a little further that'd be fantastic i'd love to all right bronson well again i, I enjoyed it and uh yeah, hope you hope you have a good deer season. Thanks. I, I need all the luck I can get. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you and me both. <laughs> good talking to you, Brian. Yep, good talking to you. All right, guys, that wraps up our interview with Dr. Bronson Strickland. Uh, thanks so much for checking out this episode of the Deer Season 365 podcast. If you haven't already, please consider subscribing to the show. You know, you can find us on all the popular podcasting platforms like Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio. Uh, and and several more. So about anywhere you could listen to uh, listen to podcasts, you should be able to find us there. Uh, or you can just go to deerassociation.com slash podcast and subscribe directly from our website. Uh, hey, we'd also love it if you take just a second to leave us a five star rating or a written review. You know, those both help us uh, climb the, the podcasting charts and be more visible to uh, to future listeners. So we would appreciate any support you could give us there. For more information about the National Deer Association, you can visit our website, again, at deerassociation.com. From there, you can sign up for our free weekly newsletter. Hey, you can become a member. And don't forget about that podcast promo code that we talked about at the beginning of the show to get you a little bit of a discount on an annual membership and that free NDA hat. So be sure to take advantage of that. And uh, hey, just enjoy some of our several hundred articles of, of free content right there on our website covering everything from hunting strategy to food plots habitat improvement um, deer management you name it uh, if it's deer hunting or deer management related we got some good content right there on our website available to you so check that out and of course you can always find us on all the popular social media platforms facebook instagram twitter and youtube at Deer Association. So again, thanks for listening to the Deer Season 365 podcast, the podcast where deer season never ends.